Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Lisa Selen Davis, writer, essayist, and author of the upcoming book, Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different. We speak to Lisa today about the history and evolution of the term tomboy and its response to a gender binary culture. We talk about how tomboyism offers girls a way to both challenge and reinforce dominant narratives of femininity, womanhood, and sex. Lisa also offers suggestions on how parents and individuals can reimagine how we explore, build, and strengthen relationships with one another that helps kids of all genders and women to realize their full selves within and outside of our notions of gender and femininity. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. As I said earlier, when we first met, I was really pleasantly surprised by your book. I found it to be such a refreshing and insightful perspective on gender and sex, something that I think a lot of what's happening in our culture and in the news is moving away from, that there's this nuance in the book that cancel culture, quote unquote, is trying to reinforce as black and white. And so I, I want to first thank you for the book. So let's start with the term tomboy. Briefly, can you tell us the origins of the term and how it started off being a slur to, over time, a point of pride, as you say? Thank you for just having that experience reading my book. That is exactly what I hoped that people would have. So tomboy was coined in the 16th century, and it meant an unruly and extra boisterous boy. And Pretty quickly, it started being applied to lascivious women um, who had a sexuality that maybe people thought was like a man's sexuality. So a tomboy, there, there's a, a reference to it. Oh, I'm forgetting which Shakespeare play. But there's a, which, there's, there's a reference to tomboys in Shakespeare, and, and they border on prostitutes. And about 100 years after it was coined, it started to be used to describe girls who were misbehaving and acting boyishly. And it starts as an insult. And then by the next century, by, by the 19th century, really, it becomes the middle of the 19th century, it becomes a compliment. And in fact, for many people, it becomes the ideal vision and version of girlhood to be a tomboy. In your book, you map out some of the different cultural moments and factors, variables that have shaped this evolution of the term as first being negative to being positive over time. During that period, though, there's always been a consistency around girls accessing that term as a way to either, as you say, um, embrace masculinity or reject femininity. Can you talk a little bit about that? First of all, the word tomboy is dependent on this binary, a binary of there being 
boys and girls as physical categories, but also of masculinity and femininity. femininity. So the idea that climbing trees or playing baseball or being sporty or running around is masculine. And therefore, when a girl wants to do that stuff, that she's wanting to do boy stuff. But it's contested pretty early on, you know, by the middle of the 19th century, there are plenty of people saying, hey, this is perfectly natural. This is not masculine stuff. This is stuff that we told girls they shouldn't do because it's not ladylike, but it's not actually a biological resistance to it. It's just that most girls and boys comply and then some don't, which was my question was why did some reject this paradigm? And in all these decades and decades where people wrote about and studied tomboys, they often asked how many of them are embracing masculinity? That is, how many of them are still happy to wear dresses and play with girls and do things that are culturally marked as feminine, but are just adding masculine things? They also like to play baseball. They also like to climb trees. And how many of them were rejecting femininity? So how many of them were saying, I'm doing this because that feminine stuff is not for me. I'm not part of that group or... I'm just not interested in what's on that side of, of what eventually became the pink-blue divide, right? Which, is, which now guides all of childhood, where everything is divided into masculine and feminine. Um, so that tension between who's just adding the masculine and who's adding masculine but rejecting the feminine preoccupies psychologists kind of still to this day. And th that conversation has morphed into... Basically, and I don't know, I might be going too fast and too far right now, but eventually leads to the, this kind of culture war of the moment, which is, it seems like everybody hates the word tomboy now in the past 10 years, but there are people who say we shouldn't have that word because the word is girl. And why do we need a separate, having a separate word? And actually that, that started in the 19th century where people said, if you name this, if you give it a separate name, you're saying it's not a normal part of girlhood. Just call them girls. That goes on until today. But then you've got another group of people saying, no, the term is gender nonconforming or a host of, of other words that we have now, like gender fluid or bigender, but, uh, you know, focused on identity. And that's where that tension lies of do you normalize it by giving it a new name or do you normalize it by taking away the name? Well, I'm glad you brought up gender identity because for me, before I read your book, I interpreted the term tomboy as being performative, not really about your gender identity, but just the set of behaviors that may or may not actually align with one's gender identity. And so when you talk about embracing masculinity, I think this theme came up a lot in your book that girls were embracing masculinity because the, especially in the many hundreds of years ago and decades ago, I should say, <laughs> it wasn't safe to be a girl and masculinity provided a, a set of freedoms that girls weren't able to access. Can you elaborate on that idea? Yeah, that's really interesting because that question of are girls acting this way to access the power and freedom that's that's on the blue side of the pink blue divide or are they doing that are they doing it intentionally are they drawn there naturally 
are they identifying as a boy or do they need to identify as a boy to get what's on that side, which is a, a newer idea. And the criteria for what used to be called gender identity disor- disorder and is now called gender dysphoria was always a little different for girls and for boys. And so when they would, so the psychologists who were mapping out the criteria, gender identity disorder in girls, they would put, you have to want to be a boy, not just because you want the cultural benefits of masculinity, but they didn't have that in the, in the criteria for gender identity disorder in boys because it was assumed that there were no cultural benefits to being a girl. And so you would only want to do that because either you had this deeply held sense of self or as they used to think like you were ill in some way. And it's all along boys who wanted access to the pink side of of the pink blue divide were seen as problematic. Whereas very often girls were seen as heroines for wanting to what was on the blue side. And up until a point, right? If they were too masculine, then it became problematic for them too. And especially if they didn't want to desist at puberty and go back and perform their proper gender role, which has been a continuing problem. I'm hoping that will be less of a problem now. Well, we can only work towards it. (laughs) But what about in terms of this concept of rejecting femininity because in the examples you give the stories at the end of each chapter there's also a consistent theme of not feeling safe being in the feminine because of whatever it is because of the way that the feminine is attached to weakness or being mistreated and then there's a particular sociologist that you interviewed who also see Lynn Carr Yeah. And her research showed that some of the tomboys that um, she interviewed in her study were incest or sexual abuse survivors. And so to me, that really reminded me of, because of our podcast and our work, we are very familiar with the, have you heard of ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences? No. Okay, so- But I've had some. (laughs) (laughs) We all have. That's the point. Under patriarchy. ACEs, it was a study done where one of the original physicians was looking actually at obesity. And there were consistently people in the study. I think, I don't know if it was just exclusively women or if it was both genders that were being studied. But the women in the study, there were some that lost weight, but then reverted and always gained it back. And then at some point, the researcher found that there was a connection between all of the people who kept gaining the weight back, and that was child sexual abuse. Yeah. So there's this, I think within the community of child sexual abuse survivors, there's a common response to child sexual abuse, which you also talked about in your book, which is not performing femininity as a way to keep from being a target of sexual violence. And so I'm wondering, was that surprising to you? How much did that play out in your exploration of the concept tomboy? So there were plenty of people, especially in that sociologist, Celan Carr's studies, who talked about masculinity as a haven. And there are plenty of kids who were childhood tomboys who found puberty very traumatic because they had had control over how they were perceived in their prepubescent bodies. And then their bodies changed without their permission. They couldn't run around shirtless anymore. 
and men looked at them differently and they were treated differently. And even many who did not have traumatic experiences wanted to distance themselves from traditional femininity because they didn't want to become a sex object. That's incredibly understandable. But also some who had been um, childhood sexual abuse survivors as adults, once they hit puberty, also retreated to the haven of masculinity so that they would not be attractive heterosexual men. And there are a lot of reasons to look more masculine or feminine. And I mean, wish I would like to use air quotes around those words all the time. And it was interesting for me to be writing this book going through perimenopause because I am officially in my late 40s now. And, you know, I feel like I look more masculine every day. My body is unfamiliar to me in, in new ways. My hormonal balance is shifting. And in ways that I don't have control over and I'm uncomfortable with. And so I can really empathize in certain ways what some of the people I talked to were going through. But the truth is for most of us, our relationship to masculinity and femininity will change many times throughout our lives. And certainly for older women, when we look at like, why do so many older women have short hair? Some of it is the texture of your hair changes. And some of it is they're just done. They're done performing femininity and they can have whatever hair they want. They don't, they can be mistaken for a man and it doesn't bother them because that whole part of the, their lives is over in which who they are is defined by their reproductive system. So I think we, in our interest in understanding gender in a new way, I don't, I, I sometimes wonder if we're understanding it in a new way, but forgetting all we learned before or some of what we learned before and thinking that things to do with gender are static and entirely biological and have nothing to do with culture. When the truth is there have been radical shifts in our culture, even in the last 30, 40 years, and there are going to be radical shifts in our bodies forever, whether we want them or not. For most of us, for most of us. Well, I'm glad you brought up the notion of womanhood um, and perimenopause because for many women, especially this concept of womanhood is tied to motherhood. So in celebrity culture, you know, there are certain people like Jennifer Aniston, everybody's always asking, are you going to get married? When yeah. she was married in her previous two marriages, when are you going to have a baby? And she's been very vocal about my value isn't tied to whether I have a child or not, or even my marital status. And I think that's such a key position to, to get to for women to be able to find strength in rejecting all of the uh, pressures to conform. And, and, you know, you talk about this concept of higher self-esteem being tied to tomboys. And I'm wondering like, to what extent we can also explore that decoupling our value as, as mothers and identity as mothers can also be helpful because it allows for people who choose not to have children, who maybe cannot have children, who adopt. And so for those groups of people to not be considered less than. Yeah. I mean, tomboyism in its 19th century form as a kind of cultural movement was entirely tied to women's reproductive health and to eugenics and racism. And because, because middle-class white women 
and upper class white women in the 19th century were under the impression, or, or maybe the men oppressing them were under the impression that frailty was feminine and that women should be confined to the domestic sphere and they didn't exercise and they wore those 25 pounds of bustles and crinolines and corsets and their health, their physical health declined. And so a lot of 19th century tomboyism was about, hey, girls, hey, white girls have this really, really healthy childhood so that at adolescence, when you stop being a tomboy, you will be able to procreate and save the white race and keep the white birth rate from declining. The whole, it's interesting that this project of rejecting femininity for girls is actually in service of them performing their ultimate duty as women. And that's one of the many reasons why this message that it had to stop at puberty was so forcefully put out into the world. It's like, go climb your trees, play your baseball, be robust and healthy and get in there with the boys. Then go inside, have some babies and do whatever we tell you. And the truth is what we've learned from all the various waves of feminism, no matter, no matter how complicated they are, no matter who those waves left out, no matter how problematic, what we learned is that when we open up that blue side of the pink-blue divide to women, that they'll gladly take what's on it and that they're comfortable there and that it's perfectly natural, whether that means playing sports professionally or whether that means choosing a life without having children, which should be your right. <laughs> it should be your right. And so the corollary to what you just said is that the normal, quote unquote, the normal trajectory of childhood for girls and boys is one where girls are raised not to be as healthy because physical activity and all the other sort of expectations of boyhood actually help promote a healthier lifestyle, a healthier adulthood. And do you think that still plays out today? Do you feel like those are notions that parents have awareness of? My sense is that parents believe, A, that they treat their kids equitably, that all children are free to access both sides of that pink-blue divide, and that we have achieved some kind of parity that makes the word tomboy obsolete. I hear that from parents a lot. I believe that most of those people are unaware of the insidiousness with which we have divided the stuff of childhood and children's material and psychic worlds into pink and blue. So many parents come to me and say, my son just likes trucks and, and my, my I gave my daughter the trucks and she just didn't like them. And then they tell me it's biological. And I've had to work really hard to figure out what's an effective way to respond to that other than to say, oh, well, on August 11th, I'm going to give you this book and it will explain to you what has happened in our culture, what happens cognitively with children, how they learn gender and how they learn gender stereotypes. By age three, they've got it down and they know how to police each other. And they, they really try to stay within their boundaries, except for the few who don't. Some of those are gender nonconforming girls or top boys, or we don't have a good name for the boys. We call them sissies. And some of those are trans kids. Whatever reason, almost all kids will conform to their sides by age three. And then a few, there are a few in the middle who, you know, I decided to go in and see what was going on there. 
and why do most kids conform and why do mo- and why do a few not? I mean, the, the short answer is it's complicated, but the longer answer or maybe the more important answer is that the, the hyper gendering of their material and psychic worlds, the calling of every possible toy, item of clothing, color and personality trait, masculine or feminine, really, really limits them. It tells them that they shouldn't want to play with certain things certain people, that they shouldn't have certain personality characteristics. And the list for boys is much longer than it is for girls. You shouldn't be crying. You shouldn't be emotional. You shouldn't be vulnerable. You shouldn't be kind. You shouldn't be sweet. You shouldn't be other-centered. And with girls, you know, we can tell them, oh, the princess thing drives me crazy, but they're going to see it everywhere. And they're going to try to master that, which means my appearance matters most and I should be sweet and deferential. And it, I just think it's gone so far that it's damaging to children because it makes them feel like they can't grow these parts of themselves. And so like why kids, why some kids don't conform, I have a lot of information about that. But my idea is actually we should be encouraging as many kids to not conform as possible to the pink blue divide and to straddle it all they can because we it's too big it's too wide it's too deep there's too much stuff divided that way well you're saying encourage them not to conform why can't we just get rid of the pink blue divide yeah <laughs> yeah we sh- we don't there are basically two main reasons that we divided things into pink and blue whether that's toys colors, I mean, obviously the colors, but clothes and personality traits, but the stuff, the material goods of childhood, the reason we made boy and girl versions of those is to sell more of them. That's simple. The reason that we divided stuff and personality traits into boy and girl is mostly about homophobia and mostly about trying to teach boys very early how to be straight and cisgender men. And once you know, like once I knew that history, once I knew that the pink and blue divide was about both brutal capitalism and homophobia, I just wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted nothing to do with it. Well, wouldn't you add a third reason, which is control, social control? (laughs) Oh, I think that's the umbrella term for all of it. Right. So there's a quote you have, a Shirley Chisholm quote in the book, that the emotional, sexual, and psychological stereotyping of females begins when the doctor says it's a girl. Isn't it actually before that, now with the gender reveal parties? So when you talk about, you know, having these conversations with parents, I'm guessing you're talking probably with like urban middle-class educated folks, probably not talking about folks who are really more traditional (laughs) and, and interested in... Uh, policing gender in other parts of the country. But, but even in that group of progressive folks, when you share with them the harm that ultra-gendering, you know, hyper-gendering um, generates in children, and also not just the harm, but how it limits boys and girls, like you, you know, talked about self-esteem and cognitive development and all of those things that are touched upon in the book, which you can't really make up, right? Like once you have that gap, it, you're kind of behind already. And, it, and then you add on top of that for girls, like the gender wage gap and wealth gap and all these other health gaps, <laughs> then it makes it even more prominent. So why is there a disconnect between intellectually understanding that it's a problem and doing something about it? 
Well, I think we're in a phase where many people feel that it's impossible to change the culture. And so they change themselves or their bodies or their minds or their their ideas in, in some way. And it feels very overwhelming to ask for these changes in in part because, for instance, uh, a California assemblyman introduced a bill before the pandemic, so now now it's sidelined, in February, that he did not want there to be boys and girls toy and clothing sections in large department stores. And somewhat predictably, a bunch of parents said, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, how am I you know, I need to shop in the girl section and I need, you know, I want to dress my child like a girl and I want her to know she's a girl. And I thought, well, why don't you ask yourself where you got the idea that this stuff is girl stuff when all boys wore dresses until the 1920s? So if you believe that a girl is a biological category, which likely that woman did, then why would it matter how you dress her? And why would it matter that you communicate to the world that she's a girl other than you will affect how people, strangers even, interact? But I do think that there is, um, and I think many, many parents think that they're doing gender equitable parenting, not necessarily realizing that there are loads of studies out there about how, you, how they speak differently to boys and girls, how they make different facial expressions, these micro movements that communicate, hey, you are different kinds of creatures and we have different expectations for you and different limits for you. And ultimately, you know, my daughter was the only girl really playing baseball after kindergarten and uh, hardly any boys were in ballet. So we can say we're doing it and then we can say they just didn't want to, he just didn't want to do ballet. But you know why I didn't want to do ballet? Because none of the other boys were doing it. So the more we can refrain from gendering activities, for instance, the more we can let children develop into their authentic selves and also develop all of the skill sets that the activities and the toys provide, right? Like we, now we have girls, the, the great example is the boy and girl Legos. We have Legos and we have Lego friends and Legos are construction sets that build spatial skills and Lego friends are really basically doll houses. You put them together, but not much. And they build like nurturing and communication skills. And those, I want my kids to have all of those skills. I would like to have all of those skills myself. But if I only get one kind of Legos or if I get a message from the boxes of the Legos themselves and from the entire culture that I shouldn't play with one of those kinds of Legos. I just don't have the opportunity to build those skills. I mean, that's a very pared down, simplified version of it, but that is happening over and over and over again in a child's life. I want to go back to what you were saying in terms of some of the contributors to why we uphold this pink and blue divide. And you said capitalism was one in homophobia. But you also, in your book, talk about in conjunction with capitalism is the periods when we were at war. Militarism, it also serves to reinforce selectively when girls and women are allowed to participate in the workforce, for example, and when they're required to retreat and take on a more traditional role. I don't think that many people are aware of, for example, in the past after World War II, 
you know, that the 1950s, like the June Cleaver kind of archetype, how that was created as a way to get women to voluntarily embrace their homemaker role. Can you talk about that? There is some scholarship on the kind of invention and proliferation of the housewife and the idea of the housewife, which I didn't study, but I'm fascinated by. But I do touch on how in the, in the Civil War, when the men went off to war and then the women were running businesses and taking on all of these roles that had only been available to men. And then after that, that's like the, the first real tomboy heyday. And there's a kind of tomboy heyday in the 50s, too, for kids. But what happens, for instance, after World War II, after Rosie the Riveter, which is basically roll up your sleeve, get a muscle, be masculine, it's patriotic. And then it's like, actually, now go back to a modified version of the corset with those very curvy, very feminine dresses that are not good for working in a factory and your little kitten heels and, uh, and get you and your hair done. And then by now, you know what you're capable of, but take all that knowledge and use it to run the domestic scene again and stay there. And which leads to the kind of Betty Friedan and, you know, feminine mystique and the problem with no name. And because, after having experienced that kind of power and freedom, being st- sitting here in a dress watching soap operas, or I mean, now I'm talking about a very particular kind of middle class white womanhood, but that's what we're we're talking about, the housewife, and it really limits women's roles. And so I felt that there was a connection between war and feminism and tomboyism that was a- and always a backlash, and and so the '70s was the biggest tomboy heyday. And it's when I was not a tomboy. I was not sporty, still trying at this late age to be sporty. And I was poor enough to to get free lunch, put it that way, at school. And what I wanted was like, at the time, the the fanciest thing you could get was a thing called a gunny sacks dress, which had like layers of lace and ribbon. So I wanted the ultimate feminine, expensive crap (laughs) that we couldn't afford. But I was dressed entirely in what looked like tomboy outfit. That is, I was in in what were called unisex clothes in the 70s. And there's a picture of it in the book of me and these two friends. And the clothes we're wearing could be worn by boys or girls. Later on, we realized that unisex means boys' clothes that girls can wear and that there is no way that unisex ever means a girl in a, it, that comes in a boy's size. It's always, there are boys to girl sizes conversion charts and all of these messages that say, girls, you can, you can go in, go in here. And that's the 70s and early 80s. That's really communicated to girls. And by the, by the late 80s, by the Reagan era, by the greed is good era, you start to get the, and the kind of Susan Faludi backlash chronicled era, you you get the opposite of, well, actually not the opposite. You get this like really interesting co-opting of that power and you get the rise of girl power, which is you can kick ass and you can be sporty and you can be strong, but you are going to be so hot while you're doing that stuff. So on the one hand, it's saying, oh, you don't have to be masculine to be strong. But on the other hand, it's saying what matters is how you look. And then like, that's complicated. That reminds me of Spice Girls. 
Exactly. You know, it's interesting how you say you like, it's almost like you were admonishing yourself for not being good at sports because we've gendered sports so much that for me as a girl growing up and even now as an adult, I view organized team sports in this country as so exploitative, so racist, so rooted in capitalism and this, of course, rape culture. Yeah, I have no desire to be a part of it. And I actually feel like one of the benefits of COVID is that we haven't had organized team sports. And so you're actually forcing girls and boys, especially boys who are so looking forward to their practice, to learn how to socialize and build skills outside of being in that conformist culture. And wouldn't it be nice for them to be able to explore themselves outside of that culture? And you were talking about like having parents encourage children to participate in these activities and and degendering them. Well, doesn't that imply that we shouldn't have same-sex segregation in sports, that we should just play without the competition part, without the money-making part attached to it? (laughs) Because that, by definition, reinforcing the aspects of patriarchy that are reinforcing, again, back to the gender divide. Well, that's a really interesting question. And I want to start by saying that there's some research that many, many more girls played baseball in, say, the 1870s than played it in the 1970s. And then we had Title IX. And since then, there has been a steady increase of girls in all kinds of sports. They drop out at a much higher rate than boys. And there are many sports that are completely gendered, like, you know, baseball. Is belly a sport? I don't know. But um, <laughs> but um, so we, we have made all these gains. Girls have made gains in school, they've made gains in sports, and some of that has come because of legislative pushes, and some of it has come from cultural pushes or the interplay between those things. But the question of sex segregation is a really interesting one, and I don't have a simple answer for what to do about it, but I will say that there have been times when we've made these concerted cultural efforts to encourage girls' participation, whether in sciences or sports or doing better at school. And we declare that there's a crisis with girls. And then we devote resources to helping girls get ahead. And uh, that happened a lot in the 90s. Um, There was kind of girl crisis literature. And, And that's very complicated also because a lot of that was basically white girl crisis literature and left out the experience of girls of color. Um, who are having different kinds of crises. And some of that has to do with what we think is appropriate for, for, you know, how it's appropriate for a black girl to behave versus a white girl to behave versus an Asian girl to behave. You know, that, that race and gender and the social control of, of the parameters of what's appropriate shift in the overlapping of all these categories. At any rate, what happened was we made these concerted efforts to improve the experiences of girls in various aspects of society. And then in the past couple of years, you've seen more and more stories about crisis among boys, not just toxic masculinity, which I'm not saying is not a crisis, absolutely, but boys are falling behind girls in school now. And now I look at that and say, why are we still emphasizing the differences between them? You know, yes, 99% of them fall into distinct biological categories. But what those categories mean about their potential 
and who they'll be and who they'll love and what they'll like to do. You know, if we really took down the barriers and the messages of, and the limits, we don't know. We don't know who anyone would be if there, if there wasn't a, this narrow range of normal, what would happen? And well, we'd lose social control. That's what, so it's very threatening to some people. But I wonder if in this next iteration, as we're accommodating many different gender identities and ideas about gender, if what we could do is instead of trying to raise girls up and then raise boys up is really try to treat them the same as much as possible and emphasize their similarities and emphasize that the body you're born with is not predictive of very much about who you'll be. And I, I would just like to try that experiment now. We haven't tried that one yet. It means we have to do it for everybody, which means boys in dresses and boys in pink. Like it means making what's on the pink side available to everybody. And that's a, that's a big ask for a lot of people. And for other people, they're like, yeah, I'm going to send my kid to school in a dress. He wants to wear it. I'm doing it. But we, um, I'm talking to people who are doing that. And I've also been talking to people who are home. I wrote an article about this. People who, um, now that their kids are not in school, especially their boys, and they're home and they're painting their nails and they're wearing dresses. And they're just young boys who just want to experiment and see what's over there, that forbidden pink land. And they're having a great time and they're not feeling any shame. And they're getting to develop these parts of themselves that they don't feel safe to develop out in the real world. You know, in this sort of future ideal state where things are degendered, <laughs> or at least we don't have this gender binary defining who we are and restricting who we are, this, let's say, gender non-conforming world that we want to aspire to, would you, would, is it fair to say we want to aspire to that? I mean, I want to aspire to, uh, to the degendering of children's material and psychic world. And I, I'm very focused on kids because adults, let's, you know, do whatever you want as an adult. But we're doing stuff to children. So I just want to de-emphasize gender. And by gender, by the way, what I mean are the social codes and expectations connected to your sex, the social meaning of sex. Obviously, that word means different things to different people, but I'm often talking about stereotypes and expectations that come connected to the sex you were assigned at birth. And I'm, say and I'm saying, let's just not emphasize the differences and let's smush the pink and blue, all the stuff of childhood, and let's make it all magenta, which is a great color. In this decentering of children's material and psychic childhoods, how does sex play into it? How does a transgender child who's expressing differences in their connection to their biological sex, how should that translate into behaviors on behalf of the parents or actions on behalf of the parents? Because in your book, you talk about how certain sociologists have shared there's a certain that children are too young to be making those decisions around gender. They don't have the psychological, basically, language and, and understanding that we do as adults of what sex assigned at birth is relative to their gender identity. And so I'm wondering, like, should those, should parents wait? And this obviously is a big debate. I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to me right now? So interestingly, it's Kate Bordstein, the 
trans and non-binary writer and performer and amazing human being who says that children don't have an adult's nuanced understanding of gender. And so when a child declares themselves to be a boy or a girl, to ask, well, what do you mean by that? And I think that's a great place to start. There are, I think, more and more people socially transitioning their children at a very young age. And I, I would never tell anyone to do that or to, or to not do that. That, is, that isn't what I'm writing about or really my concern. However, what I'm advocating, which is making all children feel free to access the toys, colors, clothes, and personality traits on both sides of that divide is just as good for a trans kid as it is for a cis kid. And so I do think that it is important to understand some of the theories about how children learn about gender and that for very many years, maybe up until about six, they really understand gender and not sex. That is, they understand the cultural, the social part of it. They understand, they believe that if you put on a dress, it will make you a girl. And they don't understand this notion of gender constancy, which is, well, in theory, your sex is your body and it won't change no matter what you wear. The complication is about how these words are defined and who believes what definition. And I'm very careful in this book not to take a side, but rather to try to understand that I was raised to believe that certain words mean certain things and that there are many people for whom that is simply not true. So I was raised with boy and girl as, as a biological category of human being. But for many people, that's a social category. And anyone can identify with it. And it doesn't matter what your body is. And it actually doesn't even matter what you wear because it's just who you are inside yourself. And a lot of the infighting between people on the left has to do with competing definitions of these words or people for whom gender simply means gender identity versus people for whom gender means the social meaning of sex and those expectations and stereotypes. So I felt that it was really important for me as a cisgender person raised hardcore feminist <laughs> in my family to do my best to understand this different perspective in which boy and girl means a social category and in which gender simply means gender identity. And to not really argue against it, but to think about, is there a way for us to peacefully coexist and have different definitions of these words? So far, I'm not sure there is. And also for me to respect the experiences of trans people and trans kids and the parents of these kids while still offering a bird's eye view kind of cultural perspective on this moment. And at the same time, wanting to make room for trans kids and non-binary kids and gender nonconforming kids and also to just carve out a little bit of space for a masculine, quote unquote, masculine girl. Just a girl, just like a butch little girl with short hair and sweatpants and just a girl. And could I do that in a way that wasn't threatening to these other people? That is what I tried to do in this book. It remains to be seen if I'm successful. 
but that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to say, have everyone understand this experience without it invalidating the other experiences. I'm new to this debate of sex and gender because there's so much complexity, as you know. Uh, And as I've been following the J.K. Rowling issue, (laughs) so, you know, the question of being able to reject these notions of gender, to me, I don't know if that's a prerequisite or part of the process to getting to women's equality. I know. Because part of the concern that feminists have, they're people who are advocating for sex-based rights. And so I think it's really hard to get to a gender-neutral world if women as a category haven't actually been able to even achieve equal rights. And so one of the things that I saw from reading about the J.K. Rowling issue is there were women, I don't know if it was one, but I saw at least one African woman maybe who was an FGM survivor, you know, female genital mutilation Mm -hmm, survivor, mm -hmm. who was being attacked for being transphobic because she used the F out of GM still. That, That people were saying she shouldn't call female genital mutilation female, it should be gender neutral. And similarly, you know, there have been attacks on lesbians for being transphobic because they don't want to have sex with transgender women who have not transitioned. And so I feel like Whatever you feel about these positions, when they manifest in attacks that use sexist language and that call out silencing through violence, like when the word kill is before a disparaging expletive, I think then you're just replicating the tools of patriarchy, even if your end goal is something that's desirable. And so I feel like being able to call that out is important, but nobody in this debate is seeing it as nuanced. It seems to be black and white. And if you're if you're advocating for a nuanced position, then you don't get a space. Your voice isn't heard. I don't know if you want to comment on that or not. Have you read about this? It's so funny. I, I had a whole like uh, response prepared, and then the minute you stopped talking, it just it, it evaporated. I was like, what was I going to say? This. I'm very afraid to weigh in on it. Which is part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not like I'm some big, uh, famous public intellectual, so nobody needs me to weigh in on it. But outrage can be incredibly powerful as a a motor of social movements. But outrage also prevents us from listening to one another and finding the places that we overlap. Again, I understand both sides of this debate. I understand where J.K. Rowling is coming from, and I understand why people object to her. I'm so much less interested in saying who's right than I am in finding a way to peacefully coexist with these opposing views. So it's very easy for trans people to look at cisgender women and say, you have all the power and you have all the privilege. And I think that trans people can look at cisgender women and say, you have it so much easier, you have all this privilege, you have all this power, and you are accepted in society. People aren't telling you you don't exist. People aren't trying to prevent you from 
using the bathroom that you need to use or getting access to spaces that you want access to and you're not threatened with violence all the time. However, the truth is, of course, more complicated than that, which is, yes, like are incredibly vulnerable? Yes. But violence against cisgender women is also an epidemic. And as, as you know from the work that you do, we, we've made these incredible gains in the past few decades. We're still making 81 cents on a dollar. And that's mostly white women. Women of color make far less than white men and than men of color. And it would be so much more helpful if we could find a way to work together to balance those inequities instead of measuring who's got it worse. And it's incredibly complicated. Going back to these competing definitions, for instance, the feminist use of the word gender is about stereotype and limitations and expectations. But a lot of, in the trans community, gender often means gender identity. Thus, for feminists, gender is a social construct. And for trans people, gender is biological or innate. And when we use that same word in different ways, then we're fighting for different things. And then what is sex? You know, sex is a, a combination of things. It's your hormones. It's your reproductive system. It's your body. It's your chromosomes. And a lot of those things can be changed. But what we also know is that what makes us a man or a woman may be those, some of those things. Some of them are mutable and some aren't. I don't know if you can do anything about your chromosomes, but you can sure change your hormones and your bodies. But also what makes us men and women is how we've been treated all, all our lives, which is gender, you know? And so the word sex is so faulty because it's also the act of sex and we're a Puritan society that doesn't want to talk about that. And our body parts, our reproductive organs are used as swear words, you know? Like we're all kinds of messed up, up about all of this stuff. And language is failing us. Language is failing us. I would love there to be, to all get together and hammer, will allow all of these different constituencies to feel heard and respect each other. But when we are claiming the same words like gender or man and woman to mean different things, we're in for a lot of fighting. And from where I sit, I just cannot pick a side or pronounce one side right. I can only say that I, I really truly understand both perspectives. And I wish there was a way we could work together to balance power in the society. Well, thank you for that. I, I'm sure that <laughs> this conversation isn't really solving any problems in this debate. Uh, <laughs> but but at least we didn't we, we didn't, didn't fix it. it. But at least it's highlighting that going back to this word and the definition of tomboyism and its response to sexism, it, it's, its creation as a response to sexism in our society, I think we have to look at and center sexism and misogyny. And if we can all work together to doing that, then it creates a space for all these other possibilities that you were talking about, you know, for boys and girls to be who they are. But we can't do that until we're addressing the systemic ways in which 
sexism plays out. And, you know, you were saying about comparing trans violence and cis women violence. I mean, yeah, even the word femicide has not been adopted, you know, by this country. And so the fact that we interviewed someone who manages a femicide database that she does on her own in this country, and they have, and there's someone in England doing that too, because the government doesn't care enough to actually look at those statistics and draw those parallels for causes of why these women are being killed and naming it as a problem, you know, is part of the reason that we haven't moved further along in this conversation. And all of those images since the Trump administration of these like blocks of white men deciding what women's health care should be, you know, which is why we need more more of all genders in in Congress. And we are seeing more trans women. And I don't know if we've seen any trans men, which is an elected, but that there's probably there's probably something to investigate there. I would love it if we weren't destined to just endless culture wars for the rest of time. I tried to create a document that might offer some understanding and, and the ability to identify with people who have a different perspective. I have to say that as a writer, like that's the great joy of doing this, right? I mean, I've written, I have two novels before this, and I the first one was about a 59-year-old Catholic kind of bigoted guy in his first week out of prison. And I felt all his pain, but I have nothing in common with him at all. But I enjoyed the experience of inhabiting his head immensely. And just as I really enjoyed talking to these people who had very similar childhoods and wildly different adulthoods and really trying to understand how they understood themselves and conceived of the connection between their childhood and childhood tomboyism and their adult identities. And it was like an incredible intellectual and emotional experience for me to try to see the world differently and to be constantly fighting. You know, I was raised with a binary and I'm trying to pull it apart so I can see things differently and smacking up against it over and over again and and being honest about that, which I am in the book of like, you know, in, in the end, I still find myself somewhat protective of this idea know that I have a daughter while at the same time being very very open to the idea of any possible outcome and making sure that she knows that any anything is available to her and we support her no matter what and that kind of embracing of complexity whether in my very personal life or in my biggest possible intellectual life is what I enjoyed and what I want for other people to do with me. It's like, just have it be messy and have it be uncomfortable. And let's sit here together in the discomfort that is part of growth and understanding. But I know it sounds super hippy dippy, but it worked really well for me. (laughs) Well, we've come to the point of the conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions I call the engendered questionnaire. Oh my goodness. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? I mean, the people who benefit from it are extremely comfortable. 
And what's at stake for them is their own comfort, their sense of safety, their way of viewing the world, the rock they stand on. That's what's at stake. What gives you hope? I was out of the city for the last few months, and I started to grow a garden, which the neighbor just mowed down. But I actually, you know, living in a fourth floor walk-up for basically my entire adult life, I have not seen anything grow. And it was really miraculous for me and not upon grounding to see this stuff. And I am allowing myself to feel hopeful about the Black Lives Matter movement and the cultural revolution against systemic racism. I think there might be some real change. And I think white folks like me are waking up some. And I know I'm trying harder um, to be part of the solution. So I do find that I, I, I am venturing to hope there. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Wow, that's like the hardest question you ask the whole time. Well, one thing we can do more of is elect more women to office and really, really protect women's reproductive rights and promote the idea that women have the right to control what happens to their bodies and their lives and work on um, gender equity in pay and in the legislature. So we can do more of that. We can do less of threatening women with violence on media, when, on social media, when we disagree with them. I think that would be really great. <laughs> we could just stop that. But I think we could, if we start with those two things, we can go a long way. All right. Well, thank you, Lisa, for being on our show. It was a wonderful experience reading your book, and I look forward for it to come out so the listeners of this episode can also venture into it and hopefully have a different perspective, another set of tools to to look at gender and sex. Well, Terry, thank you so much. This was really fun and interesting and just wonderful to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.